This week I want to refocus on Malachi chapter 2, verse 9. This was the last verse of our text last week, but I believe it's worthy of a deeper dive, especially in light of what is happening in the church and in our nation and in our culture right now. I want to look specifically at the sin of partiality in God's ordained spheres of authority that govern the realm of man. Malachi chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy poured out to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word that is a hammer, God, and let it hammer the hardness of our hearts and bring the brokenness that will bring the healing that only you can provide for us as a people. Father, we ask this that your name would be glorified in your church, that your church would be a bright witness in this dark world to give men the only hope that is available to them, and that is the hope found in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. The concept of partiality in this verse is translated from two Hebrew words. The first word means to lift up. The second word means face. And so the understanding here, the picture that's being presented, is to lift up the face. To look upon a person with partiality. This expression is generally used in a negative sense in the scripture. It conveys, in other words, sinful intent. So this word partiality, this lifting up of the face, is elevating someone to a position that is not justly where they should be. Uh, partiality and judgment is considered sinful injustice by God. So God is talking to the priests here, and the priests did not keep God's ways as they were showing partiality in the law. God strictly forbade his priests or his judges from showing partiality. Let me give you some scriptural examples of what God uh, commands in regard to this. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Deuteronomy 1.17 You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence for the judgment of is God's. Second Chronicles 19, verses 6 and 7. And said to the judges, Take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Now, therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care to do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality nor taking of bribes. We also see a reference to this in the New Testament, in Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. Paul writes, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. In this verse in his letter to Timothy, Paul is charging the elders before God, before the Lord Jesus, and before the elect angels to fulfill their responsibilities as pastors and shepherds and overseers without partiality. God's charge to his people against partiality 
runs throughout the whole of Scripture, and it still applies to us today. The command against partiality applies to us as pastors and elders in the Lord's church. We are still charged with this responsibility. Pastors and elders are to attend to God's word and the work of the ministry without prejudice, doing nothing without partiality. This charge actually applies to all the saints. That means it applies to you as well, not just to pastors. Because all the saints are to be being equipped for the work of the ministry. That's my charge from God. My responsibility to you as a pastor is to equip you for the work of the ministry. And as you go and do the work of the ministry in your daily life, you too are charged to not show partiality. Now you might be wondering exactly what that means, and we're going to talk about that. This necessitates the preaching and the teaching of the pure, unadulterated gospel of Christ and his kingdom with no partiality. We are to make the gospel known through word and deed, from pulpit to pew, offending who it may, and powerfully saving all who believe. This is what God's love demands. To show partiality with God's word, to avoid offense, is anything but loving. In fact, the Bible calls it sin. Today, we can observe partiality in blatantly obvious unjust, immoral, and illegal ways. For instance, discriminating against or preferring someone based on the color of their skin is a clear example of sinful partiality. The world calls it racism. The Bible calls it partiality. There is no such thing as racism. Do you know why? Because there's only one race. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what your country of origin is. There's only one race. It is the human race. But the Bible is very clear that we are not to show partiality toward one person against another for any reason. Here's another example. Preferential treatment or policies that promote particular genders or sexual orientations is another example. These activities are illegal under certain circumstances, but then again encouraged under others, depending on the group being promoted or discriminated against. This is what the Bible calls partiality, and it is sinful. When we see such blatant examples, we can understand how this command against partiality applies to us today. Those things God charged in his law concerning the application of justice still apply today. God and his word do not change. The command against partiality is a command to administer God's word and God's justice blindly and fairly based on the demand of the law. The law and God's word must be applied without partiality. God commands we not consider a person's social status, their position, or orientation when applying the law of his word. There are three spheres of public authority that we will talk about today, the state, the family, and the church. And I want to look at the sin of partiality in these three spheres of public authority. The sphere of the state, the sphere of the family, and the sphere of the church. These three spheres of authority exist parallel to one another. And none of these three spheres have authority over the other. But all three are under the sovereign authority of God. God is the supreme authority above all other authority. I want to say that again. God is the supreme authority over all other authority. 
And coming back to Malachi 2.9, we're going to look at the sin of partiality in these three spheres and consider how this sin has contributed to the obvious decline we are witnessing in our culture and our nation. The sin of partiality is the sin of compromise. To show partiality in any form or fashion, there must be a compromise of God's word and God's standard. To understand what's happening in the church today, we must look at what is happening in these spheres. Though these exist parallel to one another in authority, they do not exist parallel to one another in a vacuum. In other words, what happens in each of these spheres and their interaction with one another has an impact on all things in our lives, whether directly or indirectly. We are all right now being impacted either directly or indirectly by what's taking place in each of these spheres and how they interact with one another, all under God's authority. Each sphere is to function in its own authority under God's authority. This is how God ordained them to function together for the benefit of all. When one sphere attempts to exercise authority over another, it demonstrates a lack of faith or worse, a complete disregard for God, who is the ultimate authority over all. So I want to start by talking about the sphere of the state. This is the, the civil government, if you will, the authority that God has placed, has put in place. Let's look first at this sphere of the state. When one sphere fails to recognize the authority of God, it usually results in a grab for more authority and power, or it results in a surrender of authority. We see this grab for power perfectly played out in the sphere of the state. Government at all levels has refused to submit to God's authority, and in that refusal to submit, they attempt to grab at God's authority and any other they can obtain. Now, I get it. We give God lip service, and we print on our currency in God we trust, and we do a lot of things based on tradition, long-standing traditions in this nation that actually were formed and put in place because men actually at one time did believe in God. They did found the laws on the scripture and God's word and God's ways. But much of that, I hope you understand, is leftover tradition. We're still living on the currency of past blessings. And that currency is fast fading. We're spending it at record speed. And when the state seeks to usurp God's authority in this grab for power, this never ends well as we are currently experiencing in our nation right now. When the state thinks it has the authority of God, it no longer respects the authority of the other spheres. Thus, the church and the family suffer from an overbearing and oppressive state. The partiality the state engages in is in favor of itself to the harm of all others. We want to believe this only happens in places like communist China, right? But the communist you haven't noticed, are in control of our institutions, and we are seeing the state become more and more powerful as it grabs power and authority from any sphere that will submit to its ungodly authority. Please do not hear what I'm not saying. Let me say that again, in case you didn't quite catch that. Please do not hear what I am not saying. I am not saying all authority of the state is ungodly and wrong. That can't be, because all authority comes from God, Romans 13.1. So authority is good, and it is God-ordained. What I am saying is that the state encroaches into realms of authority God never intended, such as the realms of the family and the church, this is what tyrants do if allowed, and this is why we must not allow them. 
It is in our obedience that we punish all disobedience. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. That, those are the verses 3 through 5 that talk about the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God to pull down strongholds. That we walk in the flesh, but we don't war according to the flesh. This is a spiritual battle, first and foremost. But God has also given us other means to use for now. Perfect example, the ballot box. Use it to fight your spiritual battles along with your prayers and everything else that you associate with spiritual warfare. Our worship, the sphere of the state represents the civil government. For us, that would include local, county, state, and national government. The law is to be applied fairly and justly according to God's law, which is the foundation of our own laws. Justice is to be applied with no partiality. A person's social status or station in life should not be considered in the application of the law or of justice. The rich man should not get a break because he is rich. The poor man should not get a break because he is poor. Yet we see disparity all around us and the use of disparity to justify even more. We can look across history and see how partiality contributes to the misapplication of the law or the blatant failure to apply it at all. This is not only wrong, it is sinful. And it is a danger to those the law is actually meant to protect. A nation cannot function, much less survive, without laws and the law's proper application. Proper understanding of the sphere authority of the state in relation to all other spheres and to the sovereign authority of God is vital for the prosperity and the survival of any nation. All authority comes from God, and God will not be mocked by the authorities he has ordained. A reckoning will come one day for the misapplication and abuse of authority, no matter how powerful the state may be. If America thinks it is so good and so great and so powerful and so godly that she can never fall, she is very mistaken as she ignores the murder of over 60 million babies since 1973, 50 years. As she ignores blatant, rampant partiality favoring one group over another, lifting up one while squashing others. That can't continue. We haven't gotten to the church yet. I'm still on the state here. When we think about how God made the priests contemptible before all the people, this is what Malachi 2.9 tells us, we might consider how contemptible politicians have become in our current court of public opinion. This is due in no small part to the fact that politicians apply a different standard for themselves, showing partiality for themselves and those they favor compared to the masses that they represent. When the law is applied with partiality long enough, it becomes common and expected. This leads to a sense of entitlement that begins to break down the very fabric of our laws, the fabric that was designed to uphold and maintain the structure of our society. When the state begins to operate with prejudice, it is a sign that the leaders have exalted themselves above the standards they hold others to, to which they themselves are to be held. This unjust standard is what God calls partiality, and he condemns it as sinful. He did in Israel, he did in Judah, and he does in our nation today. We see the sphere of the state overreaching its authority and its lust for power. An excuse for such a power grab is the stated purpose to remedy what the state considers social disparities and inequities. This is most visible in what has become known as the DEI revolution. 
DEI stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Even our own city of Taylor has a DEI committee, believe it or not. These are buzzwords our culture and the state has embraced to justify grabbing for more unwarranted power and control. This is currently one of the greatest overreaches in government authority that has been seen in many generations. It permeates not only every level of government, but it has been codified in our laws and has moved into the private sector through the force of regulation authored by the state. DEI should actually be called DIE, for if left unchecked, it will bring about the death of Western civilization as we know it. And that is exactly what it is intended to do. This movement is robbing us of the very liberty which was born out of the gospel of Christ. This movement fundamentally opposes the gospel, and at its core, it rejects God. Any social justice the woke police are trying to enforce is already achieved and infinitely more by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need social justice warriors. We need the gospel. We need the warriors of Christ out proclaiming and living the gospel. There is no greater social justice movement than the gospel. It is what has brought freedom to countless people enslaved throughout human history. It is the gospel that has given us the very freedom that we possess even today in this nation. The problem is, if we embrace the gospel to heal our ills, we are accountable to God, and the state will be accountable only to the state. This is not a political battle. This is a spiritual battle. It is an attempt by the enemy to oppose the gospel of Christ. It cannot ultimately succeed, but it can do real damage if the church does not humble itself, obey Christ, and fulfill his command to disciple the nations. We need to begin with our own. We need to begin in our own families, in our own communities, in our own hearts. From dictating to families how their children must be raised and educated and ultimately indoctrinated according to the standards the state mandates, to defining hate speech, encroaching on our privacy, mandating vaccines, and ordering churches to close for worship, the state has overreached its authority. The overreach is not just into the sphere of authority belonging to the family and the church, but it is a direct challenge to God's very own authority. This is the state acting as its own God. This is what the state has become, a God unto itself, showing partiality to itself. Unfortunately, too many Christians are content to go along erroneously believing that God commands that we bow to the will of the state no matter what. That is not true, Christian. The state is not God, and we do not bow to the state. We bow only to God. The sphere of the state is under the authority of God and His Word, and as long as the state operates under that authority of God, we are right and good to submit to the authority of the state. But when the state usurps the authority of God and begins to act outside of the authority granted it by God and demand that we do the same, we are under no obligation to obey the state. We are under an absolute obligation to obey God. This is how we had what we call the war for independence. It wasn't because Americans just didn't want to be part of Britain anymore and they wanted to be free. It was because the king would not keep his commitment and he usurped God's authority and would not do what was right. And so the recourse was to obey God, not the king. The recourse was to hold the king accountable to the only authority that was above him and that was the authority of God. The state is not some ethereal entity that exists out there somewhere. 
Listen, if the state persists in its rebellious condition, as with anyone or anything else that persists in its rebellion, God in his grace and his mercy will bring correction accordingly. And the people of God need to understand this and then pray and work accordingly to see the necessary reformation take place in the church and then ultimately in our nation. The state ultimately is comprised of the people. America is not just a name on the globe. America is the people, and it is the land in which the people who make up this great nation live. Our nation is governed by the people, for the people. At least that's how it was originally set up. This nation was founded by men and women committed to God and His gospel. They founded it firmly on the gospel of the kingdom and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It was founded in obedience to God's commission to make disciples of the nations. It was that commitment to God and His word that made this nation great. And we are not a perfect nation by any means, but we are a nation that is so great that men and women from all over the world struggle and sacrifice to come here for the opportunity and freedom they believe it offers. A commitment to the gospel made this nation great, and it made it the most free on earth. The abandonment of the gospel is doing the opposite. It's contributing to its decline and the erosion of the very freedoms the gospel has given to us. Hope is not lost, though, for we serve the God of resurrection. God holds the rise and the fall of kings and of kingdoms in his hand. Though we die, he will raise us up. The sphere of the family. We said the sphere of the state has a lust to obtain more power and more authority. The family seems to have the opposite problem. The family seems to show partiality to the state as it seems willing to surrender its authority. Perhaps it is for greater convenience, coupled with less responsibility. But whatever the reason, families have shown partiality to the state in many things that is not the state's responsibility. This is the partiality we see sinfully practiced in in the family. There is a compromise of the standards God has set for the family. The gatekeepers of the family are the fathers. This is how God has designed the world. The gatekeepers, which are the fathers, have accepted defiled offerings and abdicated their authority to others, allowing all manner of unacceptable offerings to come to the family altar. A prime example of how families have abdicated their authority can be seen in our public education system. Too many families have been conditioned to believe that the state is responsible for the education of their children and that the education they receive is not only a good one but a free one to boot. Let me give you some news. There is no free education. If you pay property taxes, you know that. It is not free, and it is not the quality of education the state and its surrogates want you to believe it is. The church is absolutely complicit in this as it gives families little or no option. This is exactly why we started the classical Christian school at this church, to give families an option. The fact is that the government education system has extracted a far higher price from families than anyone is willing to admit. That price will be paid by all of us over the generations to come. For example, according to Public School Review for 2024, as a national average, only 46% of public school students are proficient in reading and language arts. Math is even worse at 38%. In many states and school districts, those numbers are far, far worse. There are school districts in which children graduating in the single digits are functionally illiterate. A 
in New York City, I believe. I just heard this, these figures. I believe it is a million dollars per student that is spent each year. And the rates are far worse than what I just quoted you. Who will lead us if we do not have a populace that can read or think critically? The answer is not who you want to lead you. And this is exactly what the state wants to have happen. They don't want critical thinkers. They don't want independent thinkers. They don't want people who can process things. They want people who have been conditioned to follow and comply without question. If you don't believe that, tr that is true, you need to read your history, the history of the world, because the world is filled with this history. Families have also shown partiality in that they have traded the mandate to be fruitful and multiply for the sake of convenience and prosperity. Many families do not want to be tied down with children or endure the financial sacrifices more children might require. Instead of believing that children are a blessing and a reward from the Lord, Psalm 127.3, the current culture seems, sees children as a burden. God calls them a blessing. The culture calls them a burden. Families must decide who they will believe, the culture or the creator. God calls children a heritage and a reward and promises his blessings to a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his word. We live in a culture of death and we are constantly being indoctrinated through the mainstream media and social media, not to mention the greatest, most effective indoctrination centers in human history, the government schools and the university system. What we have traditionally called education is now nothing more than the indoctrination of our children. Just like Israel willingly offered their children to Moloch, they, we willingly offer our children in sacrifice to the system and then wonder why nonsense like climate change and the end of the world is making our children stressed and depressed. It's because they're being indoctrinated to believe this lie in our public school systems, throughout social media. Yet if we actually look at things critically as independent thinkers, and we just go back and we look at the promise of the world's end by global warming, by global cooling, by all the names they've used. Now they just call it climate change because all the names they've used in the past have not come about. The world hasn't burned up yet. The world hasn't froze yet. The world hasn't flooded yet. But the climate's changing. Yes, it is. And that's exactly the way God designed it to do. God designed the climate to change constantly. That's why we have four seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall. All you got to do is call on God, and he will be there for you, no matter what the season is. We willingly... As families offer our children up to this, whether we do it purposefully or not. If your kids, even if you send your kids to KCCS or you homeschool your kids, social media is full of this. Due to the propagation of climate hysteria, abortion becomes the preferred and accepted method of control for the population. We have all but led, we have all been led to believe it is a woman's choice, her body, her choice. But what about the other body? What about the baby? What about that human being? And what we've done is shown partiality to one at the expense of the other, and God says that is wrong. That is sinful. All of this presupposes there is no God, no creator, but there is. And he not only created our planet and the universe, but every child in the womb. If there is no God, if there is no creator, that leaves man to solve these life-altering problems on his own. Not to worry, 
the state has it all under control. If we will just trust the state and pay them all that they demand, they will tell us exactly what we need to do. In fact, they'll demand it. In fact, they'll dictate it. They'll dictate what kind of car you drive. They'll dictate all kinds of things to you if we allow them. This partiality by the family and the church in favor of the state is a rejection of God. We must return to our Creator. We must again offer to Him the sacrifice of praise from the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. We are called not only to trust Him, but to seek Him and believe that He will give to families the fruit of the womb as a reward so that His blessings will abound and the earth will be filled with His image through His creation that bears His image. That is through every single human being. The world continues to push against God's created order for all things, especially the family. God's people and the family must push back and refuse to apologize or compromise when it comes to God's order for the family. Let's talk about patriarchy for just a moment. Patriarchy is God's created order for the family. God created the family as the basic building block of human culture. Families must be committed to God's created design and order. The order of the family begins with the father. Patriarchy or father rule is God's design for families. Another form of sinful partiality we see in the family is the partiality shown toward feminism and egalitarianism. This is common now even in the church where the concept of patriarchy has literally become a dirty word. Patriarchy and fathers are not dirty words. They are the created order for, for the family, created by God. God is our father. He ordained men as husbands and fathers to be the head of the family, to be the head of households. The husband is the head of the wife and the head of his family. This is God's created order, and we should not in any way apologize for it or minimize the truth of it no matter how extremely unpopular it is with the current culture. Patriarchy was once widely accepted and expected, but the feminist movement has long ago neutered the manhood of our culture, while at the same time it has masculinized women, to the point that now men are called women and women are called men. Biology and body parts no longer define gender. It's no longer a state of physical biology or physical being it's a state of mind this is this partiality shown in the woke culture and this partiality is rampant in those who call themselves the church this is not just out in the culture this is not just out in the world this is in the church this is promoted in the church and pastors like me are considered unloving and hateful because I don't agree with these concepts. All of this, in all of this, patriarchy has been scorned and men are supposed to feel ashamed for being men. Just as marriage and gender has been, so family has been redefined, at least in the futile imaginations of the godless and those fearful of being canceled. Yet, we all know this. Everyone knows better. It's just most are too cowardly to actually say so. In the sphere of the family's authority, men are called to be men and lead families courageously and unashamed of God and His order of creation. For a father to do any less is tantamount to surrender to the culture. We must not show partiality to the culture police who threaten to cancel us if we do not comply. Watch out, you'll get kicked off Facebook or Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. Watch out, you might not get your social media fix if you post the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, because the cancel police are watching. They're always watching, they're always listening. Do you care? You should not. You should not. 
We must stand strong and stand together. God will bless families who honor him in his way, even in the midst of the trials, they will or that will surely come. Just a word to the fatherless. Unfortunately, too many men have abandoned their families and we have a crisis of fatherlessness in our nation. Right now, this is the case. The last statistic, it's been pretty, pretty consistent, 33% of children are born into fatherless homes in this nation. That means they're raised in homes where a father is absent. Hmm. All we do in all the other spheres must flow from the spiritual, I'm sorry, must flow from the spiritual renewal of the church. The church should be helping families, mothers who are raising children without a father in the home. God has called the father to the fatherless and the husband to the husbandless. Women take hold of God. Take hold of his word and trust the father to lead you and to guide you in the discipleship of your children and your family. Take your God-given authority as a parent and let God be the father and the husband that's needed. God will carry mothers and fathers and children in his grace as you trust him and not grow weary in doing good. For you will reap in due season if you persist. Families are not called to go it alone. This is why God put you in a body called the church. You are made members of his body in Christ. We do not live when we do not function alone, but we are to be connected to one another as members of his body. His promise is that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us, but he is always with us. So let's talk finally about the sphere of the church. The church is key in determining the condition of the state and the family. The church is the body of Christ. All we do in all other spheres must flow from the spiritual renewal and empowerment of His Spirit and equipping we experience as members of His body, the church. God said to the priest, Therefore I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways but have shown partiality in the law. He did not make the priest contemptible without the help of the priest who willingly engaged in contemptible behavior. The unpleasant or the unrepentant sin of the priest encouraged the people to continue in their own unrepentant sin. They became a model of sinfulness instead of a model of righteousness. They promoted sin instead of holiness. The priest should have been discouraging such sin by the people. Instead, the corrupt priesthood directly contributed to the corruption of the nation and the people. This is the very same thing that is happening in our own nation. In our culture today, we talk a lot about what is wrong and what is right, but we do not talk a lot about sin. The concept of right and wrong comes from God and His Word. This is God's world. For in the beginning, God created it. It is his created world. It is his created order that governs all things. People do not like to talk about sin. Even too many pastors do not like to talk about sin because the word sin or the word sinful carries a connotation that the unbelieving world despises. To describe something as wrong is much more acceptable because it does not necessarily imply anything about God. Man can fix wrongs, but he can't fix sin. To call something sin or sinful implies something beyond simply being wrong. When the word sin is used, it carries the inherent connotation of God. If I say he has committed a wrong, I can think about the wrong committed without thinking about God. But if I say he has committed a sin, it is difficult to think about sin without thinking about God. This is why many unbelievers will, will reference right and wrong, but they will not make a reference to sin. 
The word sin reminds us there is a God who is in authority over us and we will and we are accountable to him. So when we sin, we do not just sin against a person or a system, but we sin against God. To acknowledge that is to acknowledge that we are accountable to God for our sin. And that presents a problem for the unbeliever, for it forces him to deal with the reality of God. So what's the answer? Well, for the unbeliever, it is to simply pretend sin doesn't exist, to ignore it. If there is no God, there is no sin, at least any that really counts. And if there is a God, then he surely does not count sin anymore. This is what much of the church now teaches. Now, love is love, and God is love all the time. There must be no hell, for a good and loving God would never send anyone there. This is the theology and more of the church than we would like to admit. This is the partiality the church today is guilty of. For popularity, for acceptability, or for maintaining a God who is created in the image of man, we are partial to a lie instead of the truth. This lie is the defiled sacrifice we are offering up to God, defiling his name and defiling his table with our corrupt worship rooted in a lie we embraced in place of the truth. When pastors fail to preach the uncompromised word of God in exchange for a compromised, watered-down version that is another gospel, we are showing partiality to those who want to be accepted when in fact they are offering, or their offering is anything but acceptable. This is partiality shown to the ear-tickling lie, and it is sin. We, the church, must stand against such partiality and compromise. This is why you should hold your pastors accountable to preach the truth, the uncompromised truth. If not, if we will not stand against such partiality, God will. He will bring his correction if we will not correct ourselves. And he will do it because he loves us. God, have mercy on us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us prepare to come to the Lord's table. As you have been baptized into Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as you have been called to worship, as you have confessed your sin and received the assurance of pardon, as you have been consecrated by His Word, now come to the table and commune with Him and experience His renewal, His refreshing, so that you may go back out into this world on mission to glorify his name. Christian, welcome to the table and welcome to Jesus. Stand for your charge, please. Our nation needs God's healing. Our families need God's healing. The church needs God's healing. And that healing will come through God's graceful correction for a people he loves. God loves you, church. He loves you. That's why he will correct us. We need God's healing, for he is the only remedy we have. The challenges we face are in no small part because we, the people, have allowed the influence of the culture and the state's authority to grow out of control as we have passively surrendered, trading commitment for convenience. The only remedy the state has is to pay off the populace with entitlements that heal the wound lightly all the while a cancer is growing and consuming us. It is the spiritual warfare of the church in worship and in living faithfully and courageously before God each and every day, mostly the small things, but the great ones also. That means go to worship. Go to work, go to vote, 
Do all as unto the Lord and actively trust God as the sovereign over all. Teach and encourage others to do the same. Especially teach your children in the ways of the Lord. The healing of our land will not take place until God's people who are called by his name humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek the face of God. If we earnestly seek him, his promise is that he will be found. He is the God of resurrection who raises the dead. Be of good courage, church. He will raise up his people. He is faithful to a thousand generations. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I'm sorry, let's sing the doxology. <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord be with you. The Lord.